Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman. I'm a writer, consultant, and the creator and host of this podcast. For those of you just tuning in, I interview artists, entrepreneurs, and innovators who share slow stories and big ideas about living, working, and creating in our digital age. This episode begins with a story from Jeff Rickley, who shares sensorial musings on slowness and rituals. Here's more from Jeff. My name is Jeff Rickley. I'm a singer with the band Thursday, a producer known for My Chemical Romance and a writer. Being a touring musician means continuous travel. Not just vans and tour buses, but sleeper trains, ferry boats, and barges, 24-hour intercontinental flights, puddle-jumping prop planes, and even the occasional black helicopter through a jungle. It can be a challenge to slow down when you're in constant motion. Your head fills with velocities and vectors, time zones, and delayed departures. Even in dreams, you find you can be late for something. But I believe in simple rituals, small, grounding gestures that reliably produce flow states where external stimuli cease to be distractions and time decompresses its physical dimension, revealing a vast inner space. I start by making coffee, first carefully weighing and grinding the beans. Then I put on my writing playlist, always instrumental and often ambient. Drone artists like William Basinski, Tim Hecker, or Sarah Devachi, who make glacial, shimmering compositions. Then I'm ready for the most important step, selecting a perfume from one of the dozens of samples that I always travel with. Do I want to be surrounded by giant prehistoric flowers or the fire of the comet that killed the dinosaurs? Each bottle holds a miniature world, ready to burst forth from the atomizer with a single spray. For today, I've got just the thing. One moment I'm in my bunk and the next I'm in an old church. Plumes of incense are coming from the sacristy, but do nothing to warm the cathedral's wet stones, worn as they are with age and covered in moss. But there are delicate lilies on the altar, a reminder of a recent wedding, that keep things from getting too austere. Thank you so much again to Jeff for sharing this transporting story. You can follow him on social at Jeff Rickley and read his debut novel, Someone Who Isn't Me, published by Rose Books. On that note, here's my conversation with Rose Book's own Chelsea Hodson. An essay, Chelsea Hodson tells me, should be an attempt at clarity. That may be true for the writer, but when reading Chelsea's words, clarity is actually the last thing on my mind. Instead, I'm swept away by her striking prose, her repetition, her digressions. Chelsea's words pulse with desire, fear, hope. I walk away from the page, not always knowing what to think, but feeling something primal just the same. The words I'm referring to in this case are from Chelsea's debut essay collection, Tonight I'm Someone Else, which was published in 2018 and received widespread praise. But aside from gifting us her own prose, Chelsea has made it her business to help others write their truth through endeavors like her morning writing club and private coaching and editing services. Community has slowly become a part of Chelsea's practice. This culminated in the launch of her latest literary endeavor, Enter Rose Books. Founded and run by Chelsea in Sedona, Arizona, Rose Books believes that, quote, now is the time to take risks for the sake of beauty. In this way, slowness informs the press's ethos, as Chelsea only publishes two books per year. And for Chelsea, quality remains top of mind at every stage of the process, enabling her to continue championing writers from all walks of life. 
as she writes in Tonight I'm Someone Else, whenever I encounter genius in another person's work, I give myself over to it, hoping to forget myself, hoping to touch it for real for at least a moment. All the better if the writer or artist is still alive. That means geniuses aren't finished being born yet. Our conversation was recorded much earlier this year. If you ask me, it's a timeless gift to anyone who wants to write their life or tell their story, but I don't want to give too much more away. So without further delay, here's Chelsea Hodson, writer and founder of Rose Books. Right now, I am living in Sedona, Arizona, after living in New York for almost nine years in the city. And I found that that has created a lot of different kinds of creative ideas and time operates in a slightly different way. So I am very, very busy. I'm in some ways more busy than I was when I lived in New York. But the way that I structure my day, you know, the order of events is up to me, but there's still a lot to do. So outside of that, I like to go on hikes, which is a totally new thing for me. (laughs) It's like I'm like very much a city person for most of my life. And now I'm starting to appreciate nature in a different way. My husband and I also got a dog in 2020. So that's been kind of a new thing for us. And that has also given me a new appreciation for not only animals, but just nature and the importance of going outside. (laughs) Because I'm also like, I've sometimes joked that like, I'm similar to an indoor cat where it's like, like when everything shut down in 2020, like I was fine for a very long time because ultimately I just want to be left alone and like curl up in comfortable positions and read and you know watch, watch a dumb show or something. So I guess that's my answer to who I am outside of the things I do. But it's almost a difficult question to answer because I feel so bound to the things I do in a good way, you know, not in a obligatory way, but just, you know, the things I write, the things I make and the work that I do now is all bound to things I want to be doing and things I strive to make room for in my life. So I have had many jobs throughout my life and especially my 20s and a lot of jobs I did not like, but I've worked very hard to structure my life in a way where I make money from the things I really enjoy doing. And that creates a different need for downtime or leisure time. It's like I work a lot, but it's not the same as working a lot for someone else. I'm working for myself, ultimately. So that creates a different texture outside of the things I do, but I do work a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I think we all do at this point. But it's very clear that the work that you put out and champion is close to your heart and I know it's a difficult question, I think, especially of creative people to kind of discern the difference between profession and passion. But I'm curious to kind of ask who you would like to become, too. I think maybe a less anxious version of myself <laughs> and I, and maybe a, a less critical version. I'm extremely hard on myself and it's difficult because that is rewarded in our culture and society. You know, the extreme pressure I put on myself sometimes has really good results. So. It's like how I can be a good editor to both myself and other people is by being very critical and overthinking things. So it's almost like the things that I'm always trying to work on, you know, having less anxiety around what I do, less criticism. It's almost like I still can acknowledge that those things help me in a way. So it's hard to say I wish I didn't feel those things. It's kind of like I wish I had a better handle on them because sometimes I spiral and, you know, it's just like anything I do, it's like I am drawn to risk in some ways. And, you know, having thoughts like, okay, I don't like how publishing is run. How about I start my own press and do my own thing? 
So I'll have this level of confidence when I start something, and that applies to writing as well. I'll think, oh, I have this great idea, and in my mind, it's perfect, and I know how to execute it. And then in practice, it's very difficult to execute, and you kind of realize, okay, this is going to be harder than I thought. So I think I'm at this point where my work and my creative work, so my writing and my publishing work and anything else I do, it has the same kind of rise and fall. And I'm very aware of that, where it's like I almost get this dopamine hit of starting something (laughs) and saying, okay, yeah, like I'm on this ride and I feel good about it. And then the doubt creeps in. And so I think for me, I am always battling that because it comes up when I least expect it. I'll be on a roll with something and then I'll be just hit with this thought, what if I can't do it? And that is almost paralyzing for me. I have to work really hard to not just stop at that point and to say, you know, just because I feel afraid doesn't mean that I can't do it. (laughs) It just means I'm feeling afraid, I'm feeling doubtful, and I'm feeling really critical of myself. But it's usually like no one else is being critical of it. (laughs) It's like I'm very gifted to be surrounded by people that are very supportive of me. And I have a lot of just encouragement from a lot of different angles, especially with the announcement of Rose Books. People are just so excited about that. And that has helped me get over myself in a lot of ways and be like, you know what, this is like a cool thing that has momentum. You have to just keep going. There's really no option at this point, but I never seriously consider stopping. It's just that kind of blip in my consciousness of like, you can't do this. I think everyone has that, but maybe particularly artists who just think, you know, why does anyone care what I have to write or say? Like, I was just thinking the other day, I was having this memory of working at American Apparel. <laughs> and I had I had a blog at the time when I worked we at all American did. Apparel. This is obviously a really long time ago, but I had a blog and I wrote about my life there. And this was you know, before that was a thing that people did on Instagram or anything else, you know, this is like 2007, eight. And so I remember it was kind of weird to people that I had a blog. And I had this memory the other day of my manager at American Apparel saying to me, like, why would you think anyone would care about that? (laughs) You know, about like your life in particular. Why do you think that that needs to be online? And I didn't really have an answer. And I guess I still don't. And that's why I still remember that. It's like, I don't really think it's the artist's job to say, this is why this matters. It's just my obsession and I have to put it somewhere. That's it. You know, when that happened at my job at American Apparel, it's almost like my self-critic came to life. And I think that really stuck with me because it's like her saying that was already what I was fighting every time I went to post a blog. I didn't think anyone cared, you know, (laughs) but I wanted to do it anyway. So (laughs) do you feel like it was a way to be seen by yourself or would you say you were shy? How did it feel to kind of have that space to be so honest? I think it comes from a impulse to be seen as an artist and a writer and to be seen as legitimate, which is something I really struggled with a lot when I was starting out and I was wondering what it meant to be a writer. Did it mean that I was published in 10 different journals? Because I'd only been published in one 
So did that mean I was a writer yet? Or was a writer someone who had a book because I was really far away from having a book? So what was a writer? I think I just loved writers so much and certain books so much that I really found myself drawn towards being a part of that world. And there was this kind of impulse in me to be seen as that. And I was under no impression that, you know, my blog spot (laughs) blog was making me be seen as a writer. I just thought this is an extension of what I want to do someday, so I might as well start it now. And I did have this kind of fascination towards my own life in a way that I felt compelled to write about it and document it. You know, I had a blog called Inventory on Tumblr that started with about four readers, you know, and every day I would post a photo of myself holding an object that I owned. And then I wrote like a little paragraph somehow related to the object, usually indirectly. It was kind of just an oblique style prompt of, you know, I'd hold up a lamp and then I would write about light or something, you know, something kind of stupid like that. But I did it every day without stopping for almost two years until I had inventoried, I guess, and cataloged every single item I owned. That ended up kind of forming a readership. And by the end of the project, I had like 15,000 followers on Tumblr. And that was really organic. You know, that was from like me just doing it every day and I would get a few new followers every day. So I started to understand how the impulse to put myself out there did sometimes have results. It's like that led me to do certain things in a different way and think of myself as a writer. And I think that helped me kind of move to the next level. And then move towards, you know, what became a chapbook. And then that years later became a book. So I think that was my first realization that social media or the internet can really have this power of, you know, just that I was in control of it. It didn't require approval by anyone else, which, you know, at the time I was submitting poems to literary journals and waiting for approvals or rejections. And that was kind of torturous for me when I started because this constant assessment of if I was good or not really ate at me because I was already really insecure about it, (laughs) thinking like, I don't even know if these are good. But there's something so appealing about having the Tumblr and saying, I can publish myself every day. And if people don't want to read it, they don't have to read it. But a lot of people started following it. And that made me think, okay, what I'm doing is resonating. It's not just in my head. (laughs) Yeah, it's so interesting. Tumblr really set the stage for a lot of the agency that I think people have developed in terms of choosing how to show up creatively online or who to support. Mm -hmm. Did you ever think about your well-being during that time? I mean, this is one of the core elements explored on this podcast is how we do things with intention, but was that ever a consideration? I totally agree with what you're saying, but at the time, no. (laughs) You know, I had a lot of like self-destructive impulses and I really loved artists that were extremely tortured or even violent towards themselves. Like Marina Abramovich was, you know, a huge influence for me. And I just thought, well, she wouldn't care about her well-being, you know? (laughs) So it's like, you know, it's not like what I was doing was that wild or anything. But there was really no intention for that project in particular beyond just the confines of essentially the rules of the performance slash project that I had set at the beginning, which was that every day I would post one photo of myself with one object, write a title, which started with the word regarding. So it would be like regarding light or whatever it was. And then a paragraph of prose that was 
sometimes related, sometimes not. So I had these rules I had set for the project and I did that for almost 400 days in a row. That was really the only intention. And so I think like to do that, sometimes I was doing it from my phone. It's like I'd forgotten to do it that day even. You know, it wasn't like, oh, every day at 8 a.m., I light a candle <laughs> and write in my journal and do inventory. It was like I was doing it when I could, however I could, because my life was not set up in a way that enabled a solid routine that nurtured me. It's like I was just kind of throwing things together. And only now, like almost 10 years after that project, do I have a different sense of intention and I think process around what I do. But when I started out, it really was just out of like a hunger to express myself. You know, it took a long time to develop any sort of intention or I guess element of steadiness around that. Well, it's interesting to think about a project like that in terms of the volume. I mean, 400 days is no easy feat. And then you look at Rose Books, which I believe you're only publishing two books a year now. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I want to talk about Rose Books, but before we do, I think it would be great to sort of reintroduce your writing, particularly your essay collection, Tonight I'm Someone Else, and sort of give some backstory around the book, and then maybe have you read a passage as well. Yeah, definitely. It was published in 2018, and I worked on it for several years before publishing it. So it was a very slow and methodical process in which... I considered myself kind of floundering essay by essay. It's like I was learning and finding my way towards my voice with every essay. And with every essay, I felt like I got a little bit closer. One of the essays, Pity the Animal, came out as a chapbook. And that was the first essay where I felt like, yes, that is what I'm trying to do. So I felt like I found my voice with that. And then I could revise the essays I had written before with that in mind and thinking, how did I get to that level of clarity where I finally said exactly what I meant? So that sounds straightforward in theory, but anyone that's tried to write what they mean knows how hard in execution that is. So you know, that was difficult in a lot of ways, but and it took a lot of time. And so sometimes I would have an essay where I would write it and reach the end of what I felt was basically the extent of what I could do. And I needed more time to make it better, but I didn't know what I needed or how to make it better. <laughs> so I would essentially just put it away and start a new essay and go on a different path. And after a couple months, I would maybe return to the essay I'd put away and I would suddenly have a new idea. And so if I had tried to write a straightforward memoir from beginning to end, I think it would have been impossible for me. But because I could kind of start and stop in these different ways with different compartmentalized essays that were initially, you know, intended to be able to stand alone. I think when they're collected, I like how they read from beginning to end. And I did collect them in an intentional way where I want them to be read in a certain order. But also each one can work alone, I think. They're not necessarily linked in that way where you have to read one before the other. So by approaching it in this compartmentalized way, I was able to redirect my focus in this way where I could gain more clarity with each draft, with each revision. And so some of the essays, I would do this 
start and stop, work on it, put it away pattern for up to five years, you know, reaching a point five drafts in and saying, I really don't know how to say what I'm trying to say. And I don't know why, (laughs) but I guess I'll try again in six months, (laughs) you know, and I would do it again. So it was kind of maddening, but I also trusted the process because it would get better every time, but it just took me a long time to get to that. And you see that in the book sometimes, you know, there's phrases that say, I wrote this before, but I wrote it wrong, you know? And like, so there, the reference to the writing process itself is in the book still, which I like. So it, I, I think that gives it this layer of messiness, the way that I feel messy in a lot of ways, you know, or I like that human quality of writing. I want it to be really clean and as perfect as I can get it, but the flaws are always what I like in something. You know, if you listen to a song and they're speaking at the end of the song and they choose to leave that in, like I'm always really interested in that. And so I like having some layer of that in literature. I'm learning to love the not so neat endings. It's hard though, when you want to make sure that again, you're feeling seen or understood, but sometimes you can't please everybody. Yeah. And I think there's also an impulse to want to hold the reader's hand to make sure that they know what you mean. And I think that resisting that is always good, essentially. I want the reader to be participating. I don't want them to just passively be watching the pages like it's a television show or something. You know, I want them to have their own experience. If they don't interpret it the same way I wrote it, then that's fine with me. The book is under my control until I publish it, then it belongs to everyone else. And it's ultimately their problem. (laughs) (laughs) That's ultimately kind of how I feel where I'm like, you deal with it. What makes it easier for those who like to reread to go back to something? There isn't this finite way to engage with it. Yeah. Well, let's have you read from the book. I think the essay Simple Woman would be a good place to start. Yeah, sure thing. This essay Simple Woman is one of the last essays I wrote for the book. And it came out of a prompt by my editor to write about money. She said, money is something that comes up in a lot of your essays, but you don't really write explicitly about it. And I thought, okay, I like that idea. But there is some impulse in me where I'll take a prompt and it will help me begin, but then I'll always write about something else. It's like I'm like on a road and I take a left turn and go a different way that I'm maybe not supposed to go. It's like, that's what's exciting to me. This gets me into trouble a lot when I'm doing professional writing or I'm on assignment for something and I'll want to not do the assignment anymore, (laughs) which happened to me recently. (laughs) But anyway, this essay is actually about love. So that's where it ends up. But it's, it does start talking about money and talking about essentially be, being a member of Equinox, which was something I did because I worked in the Rose Reading Room in the Midtown Library a lot in New York. And Equinox was right across from there. And it seemed so exotic to me because it was so expensive. And when I sold my book, I thought, okay, now I'm going to join that dumb gym, which I later learned they don't let you call it a gym. It's called a club, which is so funny. So I basically, you know, I joined as a bit (laughs) and and because of the location, because I was genuinely in this area all the time. And I thought if I had more money, I would join that gym, you know, to just go work out there after I like sat in one place for eight hours, basically, because if you get up to go to the bathroom, you lose your spot. So (laughs) I would just sit there for hours and hours working. And I liked the idea of joining a gym. So essentially I wrote about my impulse 
to join this gym and what that meant. And that ultimately I joined and agreed to pay a certain amount of money because I was trying to turn into someone else. So it's like, what does that mean? And that line and that idea came before the title did, that Tonight I'm Someone Else, the title of the book. I think that it helped inform the title, but this idea was there before the title. And this idea of just like, what does it mean to be drawn towards transformation? And how does love participate in that ultimately? So that's a lot of what this is about. And it kind of jumps around. So it is a little bit strange sometimes to just listen to it, I think. Like, I don't usually read in public from this essay because I think it's meant to be read on the page to absorb it because there's just like white space between the paragraphs, at least. So I'll read from the middle of it and I'll just pause when it's a paragraph break, line break. It's like some sections are italicized. So it's it's a little bit of a strange essay, but I don't think it's um, impossible to follow by any means. <laughs> but it's it's a mysterious one to me. It's one that came out very intuitively. So this one, you know, the process I was talking about where I would spend years on it, this one I spent months on. And I think in some ways it's stronger than the ones I spent years on. So I'll begin here. The fortune teller looked at my black clothes and told me, you are an artist and you are very sad. I forget what she told the painter. It was a bad reading, but it was a strangely intimate act. The painter smiled at me as the fortune teller looked for something to say. It was the kind of thing that bonds you forever. But in New York, you can make a friend like that. Do something you've never done with anyone. Have the best of intentions to see each other and then disappear. We stood very close on the packed L train at two in the morning, and then he kissed me on the cheek when I got off at Lorimer Street, and I never saw him again, in person or on television. You were in my dream, but not in my life. In my freshman year of college, I'd very often stay up all night every Sunday and go straight into Monday unslept. It just didn't affect me. It was as if I didn't need sleep at all. My friend across the hall, with a half-shaved head, would come into my dorm room, and we'd do our homework together with all the lights on. Sometimes I'd go downstairs to get a sugar-free Red Bull from the vending machine. Sometimes I'd just snack until morning. I never remember feeling the pain of not sleeping. I just remember the joy of being awake with my friend when everyone else had given up. I attribute much of my personality to spending so much of my childhood on camping trips. My parents hated spending money on flying and hotel rooms, but they also just wanted to be outdoors in nature, not depending on anyone but themselves, in their car, in their tent, in their gas stove. I've slept on one-inch foam pads on hard gravel soil, so now I can sleep anywhere. I've gone days without a real shower, so now I rarely feel dirty. I've spent days without spending money, so now I see how it can be done. Floating down muddy rivers in a life vest with my feet first, I never knew what I was going to find. I used to howl like a coyote into the canyon just to hear what kind of noises I could make. I used to stay up late with my father and his friends under the moonlight just to see who drank the worm at the bottom of the tequila bottle. I often have dreams in which I want to wake up but can't. I want to be alive, but can't. I want to stop spending money, but won't. I want to live my actual life, not my pretend life. But I just keep swimming through my mind, living on debt and hope. How can I trust love if I can't ever truly touch it? 
I can touch a body, a face, a man. I can even feel a heart beating. What other proof of life is there? But physicality is not love. Bruises on a shoulder blade, a body on my body, a paycheck, a love letter, all innocent symptoms of a hungry disease. I starve myself until I can't. I love until I die. I look to America for ideas and fall short. As a woman, I think I'm supposed to be fit but waifish, nurturing but alluring, innocent but independent, beautiful but without trying. I think I'm supposed to have children and be married and own a house by now. I think I'm supposed to make art a hobby instead of a reason to live. That would be best for money, for security, for buying things I think I'm supposed to want. I once loved so hard I almost lost everything, including his life, including my own. Only then did I realize, perhaps love's physicality is death itself. I think I was taught that love, in its ideal form, is like a newborn baby, full of possibility, still warm from the heated privacy of the womb. But I think, at the end of my life, I won't see a figure cloaked in black velvet or a swirling void waiting to take me. I will see the face of love. It will be a recognizable light, the one that lived behind all those other faces I knew up close, the light I suspected but could never prove. When I see the face of love, I won't be afraid. I will see what I've been searching for all my life. How was it to read it out loud? It's interesting. I slipped over a few lines because I haven't read it in a long time, actually. I haven't done a lot of interviews. I haven't done readings in years. So it's like, you know, I just don't have the opportunity. I'm working on a different book now, but it's like I'm kind of brought right back to what I was feeling when I wrote it. So it has a kind of time machine quality for me to read it. Well, you mentioned when you put certain pieces away, are you still sort of turning over sentences or lines in your mind? You know, sometimes I'll, if I'm like very stressed out and I'm thinking about something mid-conversation, what I'm thinking about will come out. Did you have that sort of mind-body experience where even if you weren't working on the piece at your computer, it was still working itself out in other areas of your yes. life? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Was that annoying? I, <laughs> well, I'm I'm actually re- I'm reading from a PDF instead of my copy of my book because my copy of my book is actually marked up and edited. <laughs> So when I read from this book or when I did, you know, like when I was on tour in 2018, 2019, I would figure out, you know, based on what time amount I had to read. So sometimes it'd be seven minutes, sometimes it'd be 12 minutes. I would kind of get the right excerpt in order and I would mix it up. So I'd read from different areas of the book and then I would edit for performance, which I think is different than reading from the page. So as I prefaced the piece, it's like, this is kind of a strange one to read out loud. And if I were to read from my writing copy, there's certain lines that are crossed out because I don't think they read well. (laughs) So, you know, I don't, it's fine for the sake of this and for the sake of documenting it and reading it. I don't care in that sense, but I actually have to read from the way that it's printed, not the copy that I have that is marked up for performance purposes. Interesting. Well, I know that a lot has happened between the time the book has come out and now, and I do want to make sure we talk about Rose books, but hearing a little bit about your process. I'm curious what you had to leave behind in your writing practice from that time in order to be here and to launch Rose Books. Yeah, I think publishing my book was really clarifying. I had it 
you know, a generally really good experience, but I don't like a lot of what happens in mainstream big five publishing. And I had a lot of friends that do their own presses. And so it felt kind of possible to me. And so I think like starting my own press before publishing my own book wouldn't have been possible because I didn't understand there was a need for that. I thought it was just something that people did. And now with more time, I think it's become clear to me that I think that indie presses are actually the future. I think there is a way to publish books in a way that doesn't operate in the traditional structures of power, essentially. You know, technology exists to the point where I can publish a book myself from the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I mean, that's that's really cool and that's such a gift and that's not a path that I put myself on intentionally. And so I guess that's how I'm trying to answer this is like, I think a lot of this just comes from my attitude towards things and my experience with things where I see a need and I try to meet it. And, you know, I've had a lot of great opportunities for like jobs in academia and stuff. And I actually chose to leave them because I want to do my own thing. So it's kind of like with time, my impulses have become more clarified in terms of like, what do I actually want? What do I actually need from my life? And I think I need to create and I need to not be slowed down by other people and administrative structures. It's very frustrating to me. It's almost intolerable. So I just, it's like, that doesn't exist if I'm my own boss and that certainly has downfalls because I'm always working. I'm never off the clock. There's always something I should be doing, honestly. So that's in some ways worse than just having, you know, a job with a certain amount of demands and I complete them and then I'm off the clock. I think that's actually just super rare now anyway. I think you're always expected to work more in any field. I'm not just talking about the field I was in, but I think... Being outside of New York and moving away in 2021, it's like suddenly because I was removed from the scene and the world that I was previously in, I was able to have different ideas. And so I was very aware of that. And a lot of things in my life ended in 2020 to 2021. So I used to run a workshop in Italy with the publisher of a small press called Tyrant Books. He died in 2021. And so the press is no longer either. And I certainly don't see myself as an extension of Tyrant Books because what he did is irreplaceable and it's not something that I can replicate in any way. But I think the ethos behind it is something that really stuck with me. And when he died, I wanted to, I don't know if honor that is the right word, but just I found myself thinking about him and his impact and his legacy in a different way. And I found myself remembering, you know, having a, a chapbook published by a small press and it changing my life. And I thought, you know, I might have an opportunity here to make an impact in a different way than just continuing to write. Like, I think this could be something that I do and I push Is it forward. Fair to say that to some degree Rose Books was born out of grief. Yeah, for sure. That is accurate. It's like, you know, I lost my friend, which is the only thing that really matters, but on a logistical level, the workshop we had created also died. So we had, you know, we did a workshop in Italy together that was this totally amazing thing that was kind of 3 years in and it was only growing and thriving. And when that was gone, you know, again, a lot of space in my life was opened up. So I don't think I could have started Rose Books if that workshop was still going because it was so demanding of my time, all the planning leading up to the workshops and everything. It just took up a lot of space. So when that was gone and I was no longer in New York, it's like, you know, by 
disrupting my regular routines and my way of life, other things started to kind of percolate and appear to me like, what if I just did my own press? Like that could be interesting. Yeah. You know? So. Well, it's very symbolic in a way. The name Rose, something that's growing and can mean so many different things depending on the context in which it's given. And I thought it was interesting on the site, you say that we believe now is the time to take risks for the sake of beauty. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more and if you think there is a relationship between risk and beauty and what that looks like for you right now. Yeah, I think there's definitely a relationship between those things always, basically. But what part of what I mean is that Well, I don't know. I guess a big part of Rose Books is I want to make a beautiful object. And I think some publishers are forgetting that that is a priority for some readers. I want to hold something that feels really good and looks really good. And I'm essentially kind of disgusted at the notion that a book should just be made as cheaply as possible and have no kind of heart behind it. So I'm not saying that always happens, but it happens sometimes. And, you know, these are companies that have (laughs) a lot of money. (laughs) And once I started researching more, I'm like, it's a huge financial risk for me to start a publisher, a publishing house. I don't have a stack of money that I'm just pulling from with ease. I fund the press and the printing of everything by my Patreon, which is the Morning Writing Club, and the workshops I do. I don't have a backing partner, really. So that's what I mean logistically of like, I'm willing to take a risk for the sake of making a beautiful object by books that I think need to be published. It is not a book that I think could be published. It's that I think it needs to exist. And I think there's a demand for it. So I have, I think, an artist sensibility that I then have to pair with a business mind of printing the right amount of copies, for instance. You know, I don't want to end up with 5,000 copies that I can't sell. But I think there's a way to approach this that makes it actually possible for one person to do it, to fund it, to make it happen, to put a book into the world. I have other people that help me, so I don't mean to talk about this like no one works with me or helps me, but I hire other people to assist on certain elements of this, but it is my own risk and my own endeavor. So if things go wrong, it's just on me. And that's a really scary thing, especially if you're someone who doubts themselves a lot and is critical of like, you're not doing this right. You don't know how to do this, (laughs) you know, because starting a new business and starting a publishing house is something I basically have no experience in. So I had to learn everything day by day. I am someone who, since being really young, has always really liked doing things I already know how to do. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't naturally seek out novel experiences that are foreign to me. And so it's a totally different world. And it's not one that has really come that easy even. There's been surprises and many challenges along the way. But again, That's a risk I take for the sake of having something beautiful potentially be born into the world. And I think that that is something that is maybe getting lost or maybe has always been lost in our culture where it's like, what's the profit on this book? And it's like, well, books don't make that much profit anyway. So why are you placing everything on that and like forgetting to actually market the book, publicize the book. You know, I used to work for a literary publicist, Lauren Sarand. I can pull on these different skills that I had experiences with to help two books a year. 
if I start doing 12 books a year, then I'll start doing a really bad job, which I think happens on a larger scale. People try to build up too quickly. But I think by doing a limited amount of books a year, I think most people would be surprised at how much work is involved with two books a year. I work on it every single day for several hours. Yeah. <laughs> and you start your days at five. I do. I do. Yeah. It's pretty wild to me, but you know, I'm all for anyone who's bringing something beautiful that you can hold in a world where everything is dependent on screen size or resolution. It almost makes me think that your inventory project was sort of foreshadowing your return to books as objects or really taking stock of the things that add beauty to your life, you know? Yeah. And that was a way of just for, you know, inventory was ultimately a way of forcing myself to face my fears about writing and sharing because I'm so controlling about what I do that I will, unless I press on that impulse, I will happily write in total privacy for the rest of my life. You know, it's like, it's not a natural thing for me to send work to my agent and say, okay, what can we do with this? You know, I really just want to keep it for myself. That's my impulse. So to step outside of that, is important. And with inventory, I just thought, well, let me try to just write more. You know, even if I don't have enough time to write several pages a day, I could write one paragraph a day and that would be a habit. And that could be something I do every day. And then it's published and that could be cool. And that did help me a lot. Every day I had to face that fear of saying, what if people think this is stupid? What if people don't like it? What if this is bad? And just put it up anyway. You know, it was almost like exposure therapy in a way, you know, doing a little bit of the thing you fear every single day. And that really helped me. Yeah. Well, I think it's only going to get harder with the business, but at least it won't be boring, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and I don't expect things to be easy or even that profitable. <laughs> it's like I'm trying to just make it sustainable. I'm not money motivated. So I'm actually an ideal publisher, I would say. <laughs> you know, it's like I want every book to succeed to the highest degree. But if it doesn't, that's not going to stop me. So I think my ambitions are in the right place. I think I am genuinely just excited about creating things. You know, I've been working as an independent kind of freelance manuscript editor for a couple of years, and I enjoy the process of helping someone else find their vision, their clearest voice and their intentions with the book and helping with structure and things like that. I think I have a pretty good eye for it. So that brings me a lot of joy to be able to help people see their projects through. I would say almost more joy and happiness than it brings me to finish my own. There's something in me where it's like, it feels better to help other people do it than work on my own stuff. Although I need to have a balance. I still need to work on my stuff. But in terms of putting it into the world, I love when other people do that. And I had some hand in that. It like makes me feel really excited. Absolutely. And I want to talk more about the roster you're building and the artistic community you're cultivating through Rose. But in the spirit of sort of celebrating your work, maybe we can have you read another excerpt from Tonight I'm Someone Else. Yeah, sure. So this essay is The New Love. It is framed with section breaks that are formatted in the same way where they say, I went to blank and I didn't tell anyone. So it's kind of just about this impulse to keep things to myself, like I mentioned, and what that means. And just kind of observing memories from different places. So I'll start kind of near the end here. The old love was a bullet in the arm outside of a hospital. Not ideal, but also not deadly. It didn't mean our enemies didn't exist, that our wounds would heal any differently, that we'd see our lives flash, that we'd have some sort of epiphany. There was no guarantee. 
only possibility, which I may have loved more than my life anyway. But now the new love is lying on the sidewalk, waiting for someone to carry it inside. I went to the apartment by Central Park and I didn't tell anyone. When he and I drank enough, each moment seemed like its own entity. I acknowledged the past as feasible, but I didn't see myself as accumulating. With this man, who was not my boyfriend, I felt new, just born, and we slapped each other, like doctors reminding themselves to breathe. He lifted his cup to my lips, and I asked, Are you trying to send me a message? One glassy look, then home. When he loosened the tie from his neck, bound my hands together behind my back, said, I'm not done with you yet. I felt as if I were dreaming. And if I were dreaming, then maybe I could wake up. Maybe I could keep making decisions outside of this one. If I were dreaming, then this was just a phase. If I were dreaming, then I could tell my boyfriend all about it. We could laugh later. So why was I laughing then? I laughed because no one knew where I was, which meant I was free. I never felt that way. Clean like evidence, sealed off like a jury, I'd like to be a court document, available by request. I will pour myself into boxes. I will be released. Someday. I'll say your name fully and often, the way they do in movies. You'll hear the shape of my mouth summoning you, singled out at last. You'll like it. I'll meet you at the bar stools, and you'll touch my hair, and I'll take home everything you say. Don't you know you can't trust a writer? She'll see a cigarette and call it a house fire. She'll take a suggestion and turn it into a crime scene. She'll wrap herself up in caution tape. She'll write you down. No one can make me face myself. No one can force me to confess. It's so easy to identify the right choice, but so difficult to choose wisely when I feel my life might last forever. Tonight, I'm someone else. I'm using abandonment as a reward for work. I saw a man emerge from the fog as if he were born from it, and I thought, this is a peak experience, because I knew it was about to end. The old love was broken windows with apple pies cooling on the sill. The old love was a desert island with white sand drifting upward like smoke when I waved to the rescue plane. The old love was a theater with its birth year carved in stone above the entrance. You can't take a photo of the stage, the usher warned, and the woman in the second row said, I'm taking a picture of myself? She said it like that, with a question mark at the end. A maybe. The new love is half human, half stage. We perform until we get it right. The new love is an incision where no one can see it, a bed folding into itself. The new love is a careless archive. Just put it somewhere and hurry up, would you? I feel like you have such a knack for endings. Thanks. Thank you. So as you read these pieces and then think about the books you're working on, what are you learning about yourself as a writer? I really like work or writing that, I guess this is coming to mind because I'm just having read 
that part of that essay, it's like you can hear how desperate the voice is. And I like that in prose a lot. I like when it feels like someone might die if they don't write what they're writing. You know, it's like someone is like coming from such a desperate There's an urgency. Yeah, there's like such a desperate state of mind that you're getting a glimpse into. It feels like voyeuristic to me. And the first Rose Books title is called Someone Who Isn't Me by Jeff Rickley. And it's a novel based on his real life experience recovering from a heroin addiction by using a hallucinogenic called Ibogaine, which caused him to confront aspects of himself that he would not particularly maybe want to reconcile or face. And you can feel that through the book of like, you know, you have to do that in order to change or in order to gain any sort of clarity, you have to take the good and the bad. And it's much more complex than what I'm describing, but there is a kind of desperation to that book where it's like, he's not going to survive, literally. You know, in the essay I just read from, I'm not talking about being addicted to drugs, but maybe I'm addicted to love. And, you know, these things that we are drawn towards can be really harmful and just cause a lot of trouble. And so I think like there's a desperation in trying to get control over that and that can come through or just desperation to like gain clarity or some sense of one's life. So that can be really broad and general. And I mean that in the sense that it can take a number of different paths. It doesn't have to be about, you know, certain topics that bring out this like self-destructive impulse or something, but it's like, I always say to my students, if I'm like teaching a nonfiction workshop, if you end an essay exactly where you expected to end, it's probably not done. Like you need to create some sense of working out a problem in the writing. And so I like that, you know, no matter what the genre is, but I think it works particularly well with essays where, you know, I would usually just start an essay with a question or a quote. So this essay, The New Love, is named after this Rambeau poem, To a Reason, where he says, you look away, the new love, you look back, the new love. So it's all about perspective and like what is gained from both focusing on something and looking away from it and that kind of tension between the two. So I think, you know, ideally an essay feels like a desperate attempt to solve a problem or to answer a question that like we cannot get out of our minds. Yeah. Do you think it's harder to explore that question alone or what have you learned about doing that in a group setting as a teacher? What have you learned from your students? I think I have clarified, you know, my own aesthetic, but from teaching, I will respond in a certain way, positive or negative and wonder, well why is that? And then I never seek to edit to make something the way that I would do it. I'm always like, how can they see this through in a clearer way, essentially? You know, when I started writing, I got into it because it's so solitary. I ultimately really like being alone and being left alone. Again, that's why I started my own business, not why I did it with ever, anyone else or like why I don't like working in certain settings. And so I would kind, I would almost like turn my nose down on this idea of a community around writing because I just thought, well, a real writer wouldn't need a community. <laughs> they would just be writing. I think that was pretty arrogant of an attitude because over time and through being in workshops and kind of working against that impulse and being like, okay, what would it be like to have people critiquing my work? I think it really elevated 
my sense of revision towards my own work. And it's funny reading that excerpt I just did, you can hear a lot of the metaphors. And, you know, for anyone that's listening, it's like those metaphors are kind of out of nowhere. You're not really missing context by being like, what's the apple pie cooling on the sill? It's like, there are certain things in my essays and that one in particular that are just there for the sake of them being there because I want the texture or the image of a theater with its birth year carved in stone above the entrance. Like I think that adds a layer of atmosphere and it doesn't necessarily have to do with maybe the content of the essay. It's like setting up the ending. So I say this because I remember being in workshops where people would absolutely tell me to cut these things and say, this has nothing to do with the rest of the essay. It's too flowery. It just doesn't mean anything. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. (laughs) But I don't think every line has to be in service of the greater ending or purpose of the essay. I think some things can be there just for beauty's sake or atmosphere's sake. And that's kind of how I write. So in workshop, I would sometimes, you know, frankly get like obliterated because people would say, this doesn't make sense. It's too voicey or, you know, I just I would I would get critiqued in a lot of ways and I would change some things and be like, does that still feel like me? And then other things I would just completely double down on. So I never went into a workshop thinking, oh, I know better than everyone else and I'm not going to change anything. I would go in with a sincere hope of making something better. And some things that get said in workshop are going to resonate with you and some things are not. But even the things that seem wrong intuitively to me have helped me double down on that decision and say, now that I've heard this feedback a couple of times, I realize that that is just part of what I do. (laughs) And not everyone is going to like that. And that's okay because I don't want to create an essay that when it gets workshopped, everyone loves it. I want it to actually be kind of polarizing because that's the kind of work I like. So it gives me permission to be that way. Yeah, the voicey comments, especially interesting. It's almost like, well, how am I supposed to sound if not like myself? Yeah. And it's important to remember in a workshop setting that sometimes people just say stuff. It's not even like really based in any fact. They'll just say stuff to sound smart, you know? (laughs) It's like, I don't like what if you're if you're accusing me of not having meaning, then like, what are you trying to say? I don't really get it. You know, so it's a totally subjective experience. But the element of like a group setting can be really helpful for, you know, having a small audience, but kind of a safe audience, so to say, where it's like, you're there to essentially support each other and make something better. I ultimately have become over the years, like a real fan of workshop settings and, you know, anything that just helps people feel like, okay, I'm a writer, I'm doing this, I can do this. Do you think that your love for an approach to editing would be entirely different without having had the experience in academics and teaching? Because I imagine you're constantly going back and forth between managing expectations and also following intuition. So how do you find the balance of support, but also growing a writer? Yeah, I always try to basically you know, have some sort of balance with my response. So if I'm working with a writer and there's always something I like about it, or there's always something that is like its biggest potential. So that's never a hard thing for me to see, even if I particularly wouldn't 
necessarily pick it up if it was like on the shelf. I can edit things that are not in line with my aesthetic at all, and I can still find really good things in them. And then I just find ways to question areas of potential revision. You know, I'll usually do it in a kind of compartmentalized way where I'll say, is the structure serving this piece or this book? Are there sentence level habits that this person is relying on that they should actually do a revision for? Things like that. You know, like I love to overuse M dashes like crazy, and I think I always will. But I always do a revision where I search them and make sure, do I need all of these or can I work around some of them? So I think I help other people maybe find those places of interrogation because when I'm responding to someone, I'm never ever saying you have to do this to make it better. No one's going to read it or like that kind of hardline response. I'll say, what about this? What would this do? Do you agree with this? What if we started here? Would that be interesting to you as well, you know, and just kind of opens up a discussion. Do you ever not have the answers? Do you ever have Um, to just sit in uncertainty? I don't. (laughs) I think I'm so bossy in certain ways that I I think the answer is I do always have a answer. I don't know if I have the answer. You know, it's like I'm sh- I generally get really good feedback from people I work with, but I'm sure there's been times where they're like that was not helpful. <laughs> but I try to really really inhabit what I think they're trying to do. In that way, I'm able to come up with an answer. If I was limited in my edits to saying, "What would I do?" then I might not have an answer because there's a disconnect. It's not about what I would do and what I would read. It's about what would clarify what they're already doing. So sometimes that's as simple as like, you know, there's a character that you introduce here. I think they should be cut. And other times it's like, I think your ending is actually the beginning. (laughs) You know, what about that? So I actually can't think of a time when I've been fully stumped. With enough time, it's like, you know, I might read something once and not have an answer, but I'll always have something to say after the second read. I'm trying to imagine the pace of your day, given all of the things that you're doing. If you had to kind of look back at the entire duration of your creative life, what are some of the biggest changes in your relationship with pace that have happened? What areas have you slowed down and where have you had to speed up? And how do you kind of reset when need be? Well, I'm working on a novel now and I found that, you know, it was a real lesson for me just because I felt like I learned how to write the first book. It became really clear to me that I did not know how to write the second book. (laughs) I was like, oh, well, this is going to be easier because I've already kind of gone through this. I have a sense of how I edit so I can apply that to something different. This is like a totally different endeavor and approach and revision process. So I've almost had to relearn how I write. It's so, so different from my first book that that really has slowed me down in a way that sometimes frustrates me because I want to be efficient. I want to produce. (laughs) So it frustrates me to be in a state of not stalling, although I have stalled at times, but just to feel like I'm maybe taking too long. But then it's like, well, why do I think that? Because other people publish faster than me? Well, that's kind of irrelevant because they're not writing the book that I'm writing. So, and as I mentioned, you know, I had a, uh, you know, 
I mean, 2020 was <laughs> difficult for many of us, but there's just been a lot of life changes since I've been writing that book. I lost my friend, I lost the workshop, and I moved across the country and started a totally different kind of life. So all of those things are huge transitional states for me that require a settling in period. I mean, I was really close to a revision being complete of my novel, which I've several revisions of, but I was close to finishing one of them and my friend died. And I thought, I don't know if I can finish it the way that I thought I could. Like, maybe I need to just start over. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it's like the whole thing was put into question. Ultimately, I just didn't feel ready to finish it. There's also a matter of that it is sad to actually finish something and send it off because like I said, it feels totally compartmentalized to me where I think there is one stage in which I am in total control and the book is essentially my companion. It is always with me, whether or not I'm looking at it or it's in the back of my mind. And when I really sign off on a book, it's done. And you know, you sign off and you have to finalize all the edits and you let it go. <laughs> so I know that that probably sounds dramatic to a lot of people, but there is this kind of like, you know, shipping it off to sea that happens mentally for me that's extremely sad, where I'm like, I don't want it to leave me. I liked having that with me all the time. So I think there's also that sense too where I do resist letting it go in a way. So I think, you know, when I started this draft, it was totally different where I was working really quickly. And that was helpful for kind of getting certain elements in place. But then again, it's like, so if there's a curveball kind of thrown in my life, I find myself very, very still and very, very slow. And I think that's just how I cope with things. I feel myself starting to speed up when I'm kind of emerging from that hibernation element. All of that resonates. Maybe that's the root of what I was saying before we started recording of wanting or needing more time. Maybe it's just me not ready to let this go yet. Yeah, it's real and it's good to acknowledge it because if you realize it's just about the fear and the pain of letting it go, it's not about your ability to not finish it. You know, I think those are two different things. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that this can be a way to spend your life making a book. <laughs> yeah. Before this, my relationship with work was very much dependent on external validation. I think that's because a lot of what I was doing was very brand oriented, kind of came up in the girl boss era and all of that messaging sort of warped how I moved in this part of my life. But starting this book, talk about transformation. It's been a total recalibration of values and pace. And I almost have to remind myself every day that it's real and that I can work this way and, and make things. It's such a gift, but I don't think yes. I believe it yet. Yes. Does that make sense? <laughs> Yeah, I totally know what you mean about growing up in the <laughs> girl boss era. And that's what I mean too about, you know, feeling like I'm taking too long. I'm like, okay, well, says who? <laughs> you know, like social media is subconsciously telling me I'm taking too long. Well, if that's the case, then that's not true. That's based on what I'm speculating, essentially, that other people might think about me. It's like, it's a different thing than <laughs> how long the book is actually taking. So I think there is always going to be this compulsion in certain people that I think grew up in a certain era to produce, to be efficient, to work all the time. It's like, you know, I, I talk about working all the time. I'm not saying that that is the way to do things. Like I wish I could, <laughs> I wish I worked less, but I do have this kind of compulsion to be working harder, to be working longer. And I guess 
that might be coupled with this feeling that I'm taking too long on certain things. I think that that's okay, really, to have that kind of anxiety because that ultimately does push me forward and makes it so I do produce after a certain amount of time. So I think just like balancing external expectations and basically like a comfort level with your own work and how you operate, you know, which can take a lot of time. I think that that balance is where some really good things can happen. They certainly are. I mean, I'm so excited for your debut books. I know Jeff's book comes out in July and then you're publishing the next one this fall. Yes. In October is another novel and it's by Christopher Norris. It's called The Holy Day. And then next year in 2024 is a book of short poetry and prose by Ashley Gonzalez. We're still working on the title. Amazing. So obviously there's a lot at play in your life and in your work right now. I'd love to know about the questions you're thinking about and also if there is a particular question that you hope people start asking you more often, whether it's about Rose books, writing, reading. I just started thinking about what I want people to ask me more. I don't know if I have an answer to that because I feel, I mean, I'm in the stage right now where I feel so lucky that anyone cares about Rose books and that there is actually like a huge response to the announcement of Jeff's book, like so much huger and more enthusiastic than I could have hoped for. So I just feel really lucky that anyone is asking me any questions at all, (laughs) including you. It's like, I just feel very, very lucky. You know, there's so many people trying to make things and it's so hard to make an impact at all. And so I don't know for sure that Rose Books will make an impact, but I think the excitement around it tells me that I'm in the right space. I'm heading in the right direction. And that feels really exciting to me where I'm like, there is a demand and an excitement for these things. And for there to be, for instance, like a hardcover version on a small press is almost unheard of now. And I just thought, I love hardcovers and I love cloth bound hardcovers. And what if they had foil stamping? It's like, I kind of just started dreaming up, you know, what I really liked about expensive books. And even the reaction to that has been so positive. So it's like all the work that I've done behind the scenes in private for the past year has essentially been validated a lot in the past month and people being like, this is so cool or by people buying those things. It's like, that's very validating because you never really know what's going to happen when you put something up for sale. So I don't think that there's any question that comes to mind that I wish people would ask me, but I think the questions that are on my mind are just how can I keep moving forward with everything in a way that feels balanced? Because I think that's always something that's on my mind and I'm very aware when things fall out of balance. So that's part of what my Patreon, the Morning Writing Club, is about because that actually was born out of me fighting for my own writing time because it's very easy for me to get caught up in other people's projects because like I said, in some ways, I enjoy it more. (laughs) So, but I really want to still be a writer. It's like, I I don't want to just stop, but I have to kind of fight for that time sometimes. I feel like maybe getting older, I have to make it more of a priority than when I was younger. I would just kind of be writing here and there, like on the subway or, you know, just, I would, I would just be writing when I could. But now I feel like I need more deliberate set aside writing time. So I do that in the morning and then I start on everything else. So I think I've resolved a lot in the past couple of years in terms of that and that kind of balance. But I think that's a question that's always on my mind. Is my life in balance? Like, for instance, did I sit at the computer all day or did I get up and take a walk <laughs> you know, or like do, do something else or like move my body in some way? It's really easy for me to get tunnel vision and just fall into doing the same thing. And I think over time that becomes 
not healthy and things just feel out of whack. So I think I'm always just trying to find out like, okay, every week is a little bit different for me. But on Sunday, I'll look ahead and say, okay, how could I fit in a phone call with a friend this week? How could I go have coffee with someone? How could I go on a hike and like fit in these things that I don't naturally fight for, so to say. I'm not like, okay, I have to do my hike today no matter what. It's like I'll gladly just let it go by and work instead unless I actually pay attention to it. So I'm always thinking about things like that. Attention is key. Just maintaining a strong relationship with the world outside of your mind and Maybe this is your sign after we're finished here to go outside, <laughs> step away. <laughs> I would love Perhaps that for it you. Is. Yes. <laughs> but before I let you go, maybe we can close things out with a final reading from tonight. I'm someone else. Yeah, sure. This is a artist statement, which was born out of I don't know you, Rachel, or anyone else that's listening has written you know an artist statement or a project description for a residency, a fellowship, an MFA program, whatever. You know you have to reduce yourself and your work to a kind of appealing description. And I really always had trouble with that because it takes so long to figure out like what you're even writing about that, you know, before I had back cover copy to my book that someone else wrote where they're like describing my book. I'm like, oh yeah, that is what I'm writing about. It's hard to know. And so this essay artist statement came out of kind of a fantasy of like, what if I just didn't follow the format at all? What if I just wrote what I'm trying to do? So, you know, an essay is trying in a lot of ways to me. And so I just have this essay where every paragraph starts with the words I'm trying. So it kind of devolves from there, but it came out of that impulse to say, what am I actually trying to do? And this goes back to what I was saying, where an essay should be an attempt at clarity. Like this is my desperate attempt to figure out what I'm actually doing. You know, at the time I did not really know. I was just writing what felt true to me. Maybe that's the question people should ask you. What are you trying to do? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the only way for me to even answer that, though, is by writing. So it's not something I can essentially summarize, I don't think. But anyway, this essay is an attempt at that answer, I guess. I'm trying to find a place with less noise. Last week, when I thought I'd escaped the sirens and shouting of New York in my yoga class, the fire alarm went off, so loud we had to cover our ears in warrior pose. Even then, no one left. We were used to that kind of auditory attack. We evolve and contort and accept. I'm trying to speak to you in my dreams. Can you hear me calling out to you, animal to animal? What I emit are not words, not really but they take a purposeful shape when uttered alone in the dark. The first language must have been invented out of desperation, out of pure instinct and need. That's how I sound. I'm trying to say what I mean without any stylistic interruptions. I don't regret what I've done, because if I didn't do it then, I would have done it later. I believe certain mistakes are imprinted into our DNA. It's only a matter of time before we make them. I'm trying to write something so good, so pure, so perfect, that I'll never have to have children. I'll have created something that can stand in for me, that can live on after me. I'm trying to whisper something that can't be spoken aloud. I still think about you. I'm trying to identify what drew me to the people I've loved. I seem to thrive in a state of in-between. 
of wanting to love all the way, but only receiving a portion of what I want. That sliver is enough to make me want all of it. I feel the moon changing shape, and she feels me turning. I'm trying to evolve into all wolf all the time. It seems possible if I let go of the idea of my body, if I fall into my dream head first, if I accept words as signals more than language, if my love sounds like a howl in the forest. Doesn't it already? I'm trying to promise you I won't leave again, but I can't guarantee it. You know how I am. Can't decide on groceries. Too distracted by the perfect white bars of soap in one aisle. Last summer, I stood there transfixed by their milky perfection. I said it looked like art or something. You left to shop without me. Easier to leave me standing there in my admiration until I was done. I'm trying to forget you. You must think I have by now. Honor. You always hated when I used that word. I'm trying to honor all the ways we knew each other. All the things we said, all the ways I saw your face change before our time was up. I'm trying to document all the ways I angled toward the light and all the ways I leaned into shadows every time I faced myself and every time I refused to look. I'm trying to forget when and where I live, trying to leave my responsibilities behind. Call to me again, my love. Wave me down like a taxi cab in the middle of a summer so hot only the beautiful people lose their minds. I took my glove off so slowly you thought you'd die waiting. And what better way to end? You died as I lived, waiting to reveal myself. I'm trying to use my small powers for good. What if I wasn't a villain? What if I was the hero of my life? What if I knew what a lesson was and learned it? In this moment, the horizon is calm, but red with the dirt of my past. It's so easy to fill up my life with a person so wild I can't look away. I love the shapes we made together. I love the way we spoke in fragments, Sappho style. We took our time, we carved ourselves into stone. We were so desperate to unveil ourselves that we came out like poetry. Secrets often do. But that was then, this is aftermath. Was my conversation with Chelsea Hodson, author of Tonight I'm Someone Else and founder of Rose Books. You can purchase Chelsea's essay collection anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. You can also follow Chelsea on social at Chelsea Hodson underscore, and you can learn more about Rose Books online at rosebooksco and follow them on social at rosebooks.co. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.